0: Let's take ourselves back in time for just a minute. York, Pennsylvania, 1878, the York Fair. One of the oldest fairs in the United States. There's plenty going on, but it seems like something is getting a lot of attention. Hey, look, an advertising card. It says, the Eighth Wonder, or Engel Clock. Scientifically marvelous, artistically beautiful. Now on exhibition through the principal cities of the United States. Captain J. Reed, manager. The angle Clock. Looks like we have to pay to see it. For how much? Oh, um, 25 cents. 15 cents, if you're under 12 years old. They say it's 11 feet tall. It sings, it dances there are little people moving around in it. Oh, we can also catch a lecture from Mrs. Reed. She and Captain Jacob Reed are on tour with the clock. This may be our only chance to see it. Let's check it out. Come on. 1878 was over 140 years ago. Today, it's 2020 or after depending on when you're hearing this. And through the hard work of many volunteers, we still have access to this clock at the National Watch and Clock Museum. Fully restored and functioning, the magic of the clock has not failed to captivate audiences to this very day. The clock's creator, Stephen Engel, heard tales from his French and German neighbors of clocks that almost had a life of their own. German Glockenschuh clocks with automaton figures, accompanied by songs, as well as the famous Strasbourg astronomical clock in Notre Dame. Engel never saw any of them in person. It was the stories alone that inspired him to pour 20 years of his life into the final form of his monumental clock, which would then be known as the Engel clock. everyone, welcome to the NAWCC podcast. We are in our fourth episode of this podcast series. I'm here with Keith Lehman, creative leader, and Jessica Rowland, Advertising Services Coordinator of the National Watch and Clock Museum. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. So today's episode, we are focusing on the Engel Clock, named after its maker, Stephen Engel. And before we get into the episode, I wanted to ask you both, uh, when you first saw the Engel Clock, What did you think of it? Describe what you thought of it.
1: So I thought it had sort of a nice old world charm. It's definitely something that you do stop and look at because it's not something I've seen really anything else like.
0: When you say old world charm, is there a type of old world you're thinking of?
1: Well, I guess when you think of an old circus or fair and the sort of oddities that people would go pay to see, and you think of, you know, P.T. Barnum selling his oddities and such. And so that's sort of what I think of, especially with the little figurines, and there's all different pieces of history that we'll get into. But it's, definitely something unique that you know gives you a window to the past
0: yeah what about you Keith
2: yeah um well I, I can't remember the exact first time I saw it uh it was a long time ago it would have been my first time through the the museum and I probably didn't see it actually function until maybe a little bit later but over the years it's definitely been a, a, a source of inspiration for me and um it's You can see why it's definitely the crown jewel. Uh, Jessica mentioned about this old world feeling, and yeah, that's totally right. The inspiration is from an old world clock in um, Strasbourg, the famous Strasbourg clock that he heard tales of from his French and German uh, neighbors. So he was definitely going for that look. So as a designer, I think he he definitely hit that nail on the head.
0: (laughs) So, you know, the clock is very large and it's full of features, Favorite feature for either of you, Jessica?
1: That's hard to say. I do like the music that does make it fun. I really like the sounds of some clocks when they chime, especially if it's a clock in a cathedral or somewhere in a town. So I do like the songs and the chimes that it plays. And also some of the unique like lone statues. Like you'll see different processionals, but when you see Lady Justice up high on there and death, like when he moves his hands, I find That's that skeleton, interesting right? as well. Yes.
2: Yeah, it's it's really um for me, there's there's a ton of favorite I mean, I have so many of them because they're so interesting. There's a Roman soldier that on the very top of the parapet walks back and forth constantly as the clock runs. Um, that's just neat. Um, uh, yeah, the father time and death, you know, in the front that rings the bell. Um, there's there, the music is of course great. Um, I didn't know until actually prepping for this podcast that, um, he actually created the bellows too and the music. So he made everything in that. It's no wonder it took him 20 years to complete because he really decided to go it alone I have to admit, there's uh, the devil in the clock that pops out in the different parts is is probably my favorite. I think uh, if we ever do a movie about the Engel clock, I'd love to call it Devil Inside, something like that. <laughs> there's three devils in the clock that pop out during different parts of the animation, and I just think that that's really cool. So...
1: They're yeah, they're entertaining and sort of funny watching them pop out. And I I forget is there a sound effect? I sort of think that like you know they're sort of laughing when they pop out, but maybe not.
2: No, there's no laughing. Um, but but the but the but the hatch that he pops out of is clacks very hard. So I mean, and I think that that was a conscious choice. It, it's very interesting all the all the small parts of that that make this whole very kind of uh, strange and wonderful thing
1: <laughs> i was just thinking of that yes because you think of complications on a watch and a clock and stephen engel just completely took it to the you know hundredth degree with all the complications it's like okay so you have you know seconds months day of the month whatever it's like oh i'm gonna do the whole moon cycle and the seasons and have it go around in like a space set up. And it's very interesting. And I like that because I also like astronomy and different astronomical devices. And so that's a very special and fascinating portion of the clock as well.
2: I don't really think it was made to tell time. (laughs) Although that certainly it could it just that was one feature of it.
0: Great. Without further ado, I'm excited to share today's episode with you about the angle clock So, let's get right to it! This episode will explore the history of Engel himself and how it has impacted NAWCC history. To help me with this episode, I have a very special guest.
3: Hi, uh, I'm Bill Zell.
0: Bill's a lifelong Lancaster County native, and he's the gallery attendant at the museum. Before working for the museum, he was a letter carrier all the way until 2011.
3: And when my children were growing up back in the late 90s and early 2000s, we had come over here a couple times to visit the museum. And that's where I actually heard about the association, too.
0: If you're looking for someone to tell you all about Engel, Bill's the
3: one. I actually did become about obsessed with it <laughs> once I started working with it. And I just all the time just wanted to know more and more and more about it. You know, it's, it just became something that I couldn't uh, let go of.
0: Let's begin on the right track. The angle clock falls into the timepiece category called monumental
3: clocks. One of the definitions I had read defines a monumental clock, but we would call more of a tower clock in our definition. You know, they're in front of a building or in a large tower for the public to see. The ones we're referring to are large clocks which incorporate more than just timekeeping that had a lot of animated figures and other specialties. These were built in the latter 1800s and early 1900s and they were as much for entertainment as what they were for timekeeping.
0: And that's the perfect category for the angle clock. It has a geometric shape and has a lot of angular and squared off lines. The general shape of the whole piece is geometrically quite square and symmetrical. Looking at a picture from the front, you'll see a very wide base which houses a three-dimensional model planetary system that keeps track of planet positions. Sitting on the base are three towers, with the center tower slightly taller than the outer two. The top of the outer towers look like castle turrets. On their front side, they have both narrow and wide rounded arches where figures appear from. The center tower house the main dial that tells time along with multiple platforms for the iconic figures like Death, Lady Justice, Jesus, and Father Time. It was typical in past photos and drawings to see the clock with decorative flags attached to the towers.
3: To give you an idea of size, it's 11 feet high, it's eight feet wide and three feet deep, weighs 1,049 pounds. Surprisingly enough, none of the wood on this clock is warped because of the way that they processed their wood back in those days.
0: Back in those days, wood was dried naturally allowing all the sap and moisture to evaporate without accelerating the drying process with kilns or ovens. This means that any warping the wood may have to go through is already done before ever going to the sawmill.
3: There's a lot of gold leaf trim on the clock. There's some nice, beautiful red fabric decorations. The clock fortunately was built to come apart. The two side towers simply lift off. The center tower is in two sections, which slide apart. And the base, um, that's probably close to four feet high, eight feet wide and three feet deep. Fortunately, that comes apart the four sides and there's a heavy slab on top.
0: To give you some perspective, there's an old photo of Engel standing next to his clock. The base by itself stops around Engel's shoulders. The Engel clock is indeed a clock, so it tells time just like the rest of them. But the dial is only about 10 inches wide. The rest of the space is taken up by the figurines and the mechanisms that make them move and sing.
3: There's actually 46 human-type figures on the clock. If I start at the top, there's a soldier who's marching back and forth, an ancient soldier, a Lady Justice who raises and lowers her scales during the procession. There's a rooster that crows. Um, There are the 12 apostles. There's three different figures of the devil. Of course, there's Jesus, three Marys that appear in the Bible. For the timekeeping, there is a skeleton who chimes the hour, three figures representing different ages of life or of man. There is Father Time who chimes the quarter hours. Then we have the 16 colonial soldiers with the Battle of Monmouth and Molly Pitcher. And I think we probably pretty well covered those type of figures on there.
0: The figurines move at a steady pace. The processionals are slower, allowing each figure to be viewed. Each movement is accompanied by a sound. A door clapping, gears whirring, organ piping, chime dinging, the small figures clicking and creaking. It's nothing earth-shattering. No explosions or CGI. No flashbangs. These mechanical components hold some sort of timelessness in their physical form.
3: Twelve apostles march past Jesus. Eleven of them turn to face Jesus as they pass to honor him. But one of them, representing Peter, turns its back toward Jesus. After that, a little rooster crows. During that procession, two hymns are played. In the left-hand tower, what we refer to as a commemoration of the Battle of Monmouth, if you've heard the name Molly Pitcher, that's the battle where she became famous. And that consists of uh, 16 soldiers and Molly Pitcher marching across in front of everybody to the tunes of a fife.
0: Each figurine featured on the clock holds some sort of significance. Symbolism for things like life and death, which were represented by characters like the skeleton and Father Time. And that was pretty typical for European timepieces. Even the figure of Molly Pitcher held symbolic value.
3: Now, there's two things about Molly Pitcher. First of all, she was a Pennsylvanian, born in New Jersey, but she lived most of her life in Carlisle. But also, Molly Pitcher was a very beloved heroine in the days of Engel because women traditionally didn't take up a part in a battle like she did. It was a patriotic move.
0: Moving down to the base of the clock, the model planetary system I mentioned earlier, is called a Tellurian.
3: T-E-L-L-U-R-I-A-N. In this case, he has an earth in the middle, a position in the lower center represents the position of the sun at noon.
0: The little earth glow rotates every 24 hours while the moon completes its orbit around the earth every 29 and a half days.
3: And then the whole background, there's a disc with constellations and stuff, and that takes a full year to make a complete rotation.
0: The disc Bill mentions is an elliptical dial. On it is painted the months of the year, zodiac signs, and constellations.
3: He was requested by a couple universities to make smaller versions of this thing so they could use them for classroom instruction. But we do have a copy of a letter from Yale praising his advanced design for the time and thanking him for his donation to the universities.
0: The whole piece needed something to make it move, of course. Part of the charm, I think, comes from the physical mechanics. Compared to anything digital, the weights that power it keep it grounded in reality.
3: The apostolic procession itself is powered by a weight of 104 pounds. The organs, I think the ones like 35 pounds, and the Motley Pitcher combined organ and movement is powered by a 65-pound weight. There are seven weights in there altogether, and some of them look like they might be 10 pounds, um, but most of them are in the 30s range.
0: Bill said that he doesn't know a lot about the mechanics of the clock, but he knows that there are several different kinds of movements that make the clock move.
3: A couple people who were clockmakers that came through the museum told me that it is not a traditional clock movement. It's something that Engel invented himself. There's the timekeeping movement. There's also a movement which runs the apostolic procession. Those are the two major movements. There's a small movement that runs the soldier up top.
0: To add to its complexity and charm, Angus Clock also had a pipe organ system to play music.
3: Again, they're weight-driven, but there is a little wheel that powers bellows in each of them. The Apostles has 27 pipes, the the Little Soldiers Parade has 11 notes. The closest principle, if you're familiar with the little music box, is the little metal wheel that goes around with the tuning forks. Well, this has staples or pins instead of the raised metal. Notches on those, raise or lower organ keys instead. We refer to it as barrel organs.
0: We'll be back after the break.
1: Join the NAWCC for only $52 for the first year and $90 a year for continuing members. Check out our website, www.nawcc.org, for more information. Click on the Join link at the top of the page. You can also learn more by clicking on the About tab on the top of the page. Visit www.nawcc.org.
2: Solus Auctions in Lone Jack, Missouri provides excellent service for buyers and sellers. Check out their upcoming in-house and online auctions. Learn more about their upcoming auction of two combined collections with exceptional material including clocks, music boxes, and statuary. Telephone, internet, and absentee bidding are accepted. Call 816 697 or go to www.soullisauctions.com. That's S-O-U-L-I-S auctions.com.
0: Welcome back to the NAWCC podcast. In this episode, we're covering the Engle Clock, a monumental clock that's 8 feet wide and 11 feet high. We've already covered what it looks like, its unique features, and now we take a look at its creator. In an old NAWCC bulletin, former executive director Tom Barteles describes Engel as having a gaunt Ichabod Crane type of build. Looking at adult photos of Engel, you'll find this description to be fitting. Covering his non-smiling face, he had a dark, thick beard and mustache, which later turned white in his older days. His face was angular, and it's easy to see his cheekbones. And hooked over prominent ears were thin circular t shaped glasses, with tired eyes gazing out. Engel was born on December 18th, 1837, in Sugarloaf Township, part of Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. Raised on a farm in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, his father and two brothers tinkered with watches. And as a boy, Engel had a strong aptitude for tools and mechanics.
3: He was a very mechanically-minded child, His entertainment when he was growing up was to build little sawmills and grain mills, and he would power them with the local stream, and he would make these little saws and cut corn stalks with them. You know, for a child up to maybe 12 years old, it's just remarkable that he was able to to do that stuff. He only was schooled up till sixth grade, which was normal at that time.
0: The lack of formal education was not a barrier for Engel. In a letter to the clock managers, Mr. and Mrs. Jacob Reed, Engel wrote these thoughts about education and knowledge. He wrote, "'Books are a good thing in their place, but a boy does not want them for breakfast, dinner, and supper. I mentioned this to show how children creep before they learn to walk, and how everything in this world has to be learned by experience. We learn danger by first getting hurt. My grade of education was a country school, three months in the year, and a good institution it is. This is all the education I received at the time, But I begged, borrowed, and stole a great deal since, which all must do to gain knowledge.
3: Then he worked a lot with his neighbors, uh, German and French immigrants for the most part. He learned a lot of various skills from them, but they would also tell him stories about the large clocks in their homelands. The Germans, you know, you've probably heard of the Glockenspiels, the clocks that have people that go around and some of them maybe dance. And then also there's the French Strasbourg Cathedral's apostolic clock. And these two things stuck in his mind, and gradually it inspired him to build this clock.
0: In his teenage years, Engel learned watchmaking in Scranton, Pennsylvania, for two and a half years. He then moved back to Hazleton to work for his brother, Sylvester. Soon after, at around 1860, he moved out to start his own business in Whitehaven, Pennsylvania, about 30 miles away from Hazleton. At this point, he's in his early 20s, and the stories from his French and German neighbors have stuck with him.
3: He wondered why America didn't have any clocks like this, like the Europeans had. You know, so in 1857, not quite 20 years old at the time, he started building this. He decided he could build an apostolic clock.
0: When Bill mentions an apostolic clock, he's referencing clocks that feature Jesus' apostles from the Christian Bible, similarly to the famous Strasbourg clock in the Cathedral at Notre Dame. Building his clock was not Engel's full-time job. He spent all of his spare time working on it. But his profession included a colorful variety of work. When he returned to Hazleton again, he practiced self-taught dentistry, he made jewelry and watch cases, and eventually practiced optometry. As Enkel continued to work on his clock, he did have a goal in mind. Philadelphia was preparing to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the Declaration of Independence being signed in Philadelphia, and it was the host of that year's World's Fair, a three-month international expo, showcasing the achievements of countries from all around the world. And Engel wanted to have the clock finished in time to showcase at the World's Fair.
3: When he found that out, he really wanted to display this clock. So he did nothing but work on this clock. Didn't matter if it was night or day. He slept when he had to sleep and ate when he had to eat. And he still didn't finish it until 1877.
0: Engel did miss the Expo in 1876. He missed his deadline by a few months. And on top of that, The intensity of his work put a toll on his body.
3: He spent so many hours figuring wheel trains and gear ratios and stuff on paper that he ruined his eyesight. He ended up having to travel to Philadelphia and see an optometrist who made glasses for him and corrected his vision. This is nothing that I've read anywhere. I'm just assuming that because he was helped so much like that, And the type of personality that he was wanting to help others who could not afford to go to Philadelphia for help, he decided to practice that so that he would be available to help his local folks who needed, you know, glasses.
0: He gradually became a leading watchmaker and jeweler in Hazleton while practicing dentistry and optometry.
3: This was a busy man besides being an inventor. You know, he didn't have time to travel with this clock, so he would hire people to take it on tour. Whoever was managing the clock at the time would have a team of what we're pretty sure was four people that would travel with them, people who learned how to maintain the clock, and they must have been excellent at packing it because... You know, you got to remember back in 1800s up until the mid 1930s, we didn't have much in the way of trucks or even roads. So this thing traveled some pretty rough, you know, horse-drawn wagon and the roads that were basically ruts in a lot of cases.
0: This is where Jacob Reed and his wife come into the picture. The Reeds managed the clock as it went out on tour.
3: He was the promoter and manager but she's the one that would give the presentation of the clock. You know, when we demonstrate the clock, we give a little history of it and then we describe it. But from what I understand originally, Mrs. Reed would introduce the clock and lecture until quarter past the hour when Father Time would strike that. The clock would be running and then she would lecture, I understand, till 30 minutes past the hour when the next thing would strike. And then until 40 minutes past the hour when Molly Pitcher would go off. And then until 45 minutes past the hour when the next quarter would strike. And then f- till five minutes of the hour when the apostolic procession would go through. <laughs> I mean, I, I just can't, I can't imagine sitting there listening to somebody talking for an hour like that.
0: <laughs> Despite the long lectures, the angle clock steadily became very successful and people paid to come out and see it.
3: The next thing you know, it was so popular that other people decided to get in on the act, an imitation clock started to show up. Now, the Angle clock, as I described it, is eight feet wide. But in 1877, it consisted of only one tower and was probably only maybe three feet wide. So Angle was quite disturbed by this. So for 1878, he completed the clock in its present form. He built the larger base for it added the other two animated towers and sent it back on tour again. And at that point, it was not able to be imitated so easily anymore.
0: The clock that you'd see at the museum today is the culmination of multiple stages of his work, showing his progression from one phase to the next. Engel was truly an inventor and innovator. He consistently was improving on something he had previously made, or he was making something totally new. He started many business ventures, including the S.D. Engel Engraving Machine Company, S.D. Engel Chewing Gum Company, and also a silver and copper mine.
3: But he was apparently not just a person that yanked teeth. He held a pat for a method of mounting porcelain teeth into silver or gold plates. So his dentistry must have been pretty scientific, you know, a serious practice, not just a quack type thing like we would think of a dentist back in those days. His patents didn't go along any one line. He had a patent to help keep ladies' dresses out of the mud when they were walking outdoors. Like I said, his dentist thing, uh, his Tellurian, the astronomical part on the bottom of the clock was an invention. He invented two or three different types of guns. I know one was a spring-powered rifle, one was an air-powered rifle. I mean, his his inventions were just all over the place. <laughs> yeah.
0: Engel even entertained the thought of starting another monumental clock.
3: He was going to make another one and his family talked him out of it. You know, it took him 21 years to build this thing. You know, <laughs> I don't think they wanted him being tied up again like that.
0: But aside from Engel's vocations, his home life was very full.
3: He got married in 1860. Um, his wife, from what I can understand, was, uh, came from a rather wealthy family. I had read that the sons, when they got married, she bought them a house. He managed to have 10 children, as busy as he was. But unfortunately, only five of his children survived to adulthood. And he outlived all but two of them. Uh, his oldest child only lived to be like 60 years old. He lived to be 83. He died in January of 1921.
0: Engel's descendants are still present in Pennsylvania. From their memory and retelling, they described Engel as an unassuming and gentle man who liked to smoke a corncob pipe with strong tobacco. His children and grandchildren hold him in their memories with much respect and esteem. After the break, we'll hear how the clock was almost bought by the Smithsonian, but instead found a home at the National Watch and Clock Museum.
1: Watch parts fabrication from Henning Horological Fabrication. This watchmaker provides vintage or modern watch movement parts made to order. Platform repairs and repivoting are also welcome. Check out Henning Horological Fabrication. Call 413 549 1950 or go to www.henningwatches.com. Dot .com That's www.henningwatches.com
2: Visit us at the National Watch and Clock Museum. The museum stands in historic Lancaster County, located at 514 Poplar Street in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Check out fascinating timepieces like the ones featured in this podcast and more at the National Watch and Clock Museum. Go to the NAWCC website, www.nawcc.org, for more information on exhibits, events, and important announcements.
0: Welcome back. If you look at the clock today in the museum, Its condition makes it look like it was transported straight from 1878, partly due to Engel's craftsmanship, but it's mainly because of the efforts of over 40 volunteers, giving their time to restore the clock to its fullest potential. But let's back up a bit. The clock was finished in 1878 in its final form, and then was consistently on tour for about 75 years.
3: But after that 75 years, in 1951, it was put into retirement And it sat in a barn in Syracuse, New York, until 1983.
0: Between 1951 and 1983, apart from its owner, no one knew where the clock was. NAWCC founding president Robert Franks inquired about the clock's whereabouts in the organization's February 1952 bulletin. 25 years after 1952, a letter featured in the October 1977 bulletin was written by Susan S. Engel a relative, asking for information about the clock. Her letter ends saying, if anyone has any idea who presently owns the clock or has any leads at all which I might follow, I would be very grateful for your help. Susan Engel last heard that the clock was sold to an antique dealer in Trumansburg, New York, and then assumed it was sold again to someone unknown. Somewhere along the line, between 1977 and 1983, the clock was moved from the state of New York to Goshen, Connecticut. It was then rediscovered in a barn and put up for sale. And this is where Tom comes in.
4: Tom Bartels.
0: Tom got his start in clocks when he was a kid. And the NAWCC has almost always been a part of his life.
4: My family got involved in it, began to go to NAWCC meetings, about 10 or 11 years old. I've been a member for almost 54 years now, hired as the first executive director in 1988. Served in that position for 13 years. I first learned of the clock shortly after I had come on board as executive director in 1988. By reading some of the trade cards and a couple of pamphlets that we had in the uh, library. All of the advertising and descriptions were all, you know, in this real flowery Victorian type of prose that exalted this piece as uh, something that everybody uh, should see once in their lifetime. So when I saw this card, it really piqued my interest. And then I learned that uh, there had been inquiries made that we had gotten from the Smithsonian that said they were interested in finding out where it was. One of our members heard about it, and he was the first contact.
0: Now the clock was rediscovered in 1983. But at the time, the seller wanted well over $100,000 for the clock. The price discouraged the initial NAWCC member and the Smithsonian from buying. But in addition, the clock was in very poor condition.
4: It was obvious that it needed, you know, a lot of serious, serious restoration. It was a pile of rubble in the corner of a barn, uh, all in pieces.
0: So with no buyers or potential offers, the clock continued to sit in Goshen, Connecticut for five more years. And still, no takers.
4: After a while, uh, I think he realized he wasn't going to get the kind of money he thought he was going to get for it and said he would be negotiable. It's
0: 1985, and Tom decides to go to Connecticut and see what offer he could make to buy the clock. He brings along with him conservator John Metcalf and one of their best volunteers, Lee Davis.
4: So we rented a U-Haul and headed up to Connecticut. It was in October, rainy, cold, and we get to this farm and uh, met this guy. The guy owned a traveling circus, and that's why he bought the clock. His idea was to get the thing back up and incorporate it into a circus. That's why he had weird animals. In the next stall was a zebra in the barn. And out in the field, he had a, a giraffe. And there were a couple other animals around too. There was an emu and or, or an ostrich. And he said, yeah, it's in the barn. So we go in the barn, and then on you know, one side was a very large pile of rubble. There were rodents living in it. Most of the figures had been chewed up by rats and mice. There had been some really bad attempts at some repairs to keep the thing going. I could make out from what was there that it was indeed the ingle clock, but I was kind of stunned on the fact that it was a lot smaller than the trade cards and everything had described it.
0: The angle clock Tom expected from the old trade cards and pamphlets did not match the reality of the real thing. Putting its poor condition aside when he first saw it, Tom was expecting something enormous. Because the descriptions he had read and the illustrations he saw used verbose language and unrealistic scaling. Some drawings that depicted people standing next to the clock were unrealistic.
4: The people must have been about two feet tall that were standing in front of it because it looked like it was 30 feet tall. As it turns out, the clock is about, what, 10, 11 feet tall with the flags and everything.
0: When checking it out on the inside, Tom was also disappointed with its functionality.
4: All of the different functions that were supposed to have been so wonderfully thought out, constructed, and designed uh, really weren't there. Most of the celestial functions and uh, things like that were just dials that had hands attached to them and really didn't do anything. Most all of the uh, complicated functions were done manually and never had any real mechanisms attached to them. In that sense, the whole thing was kind of a scam. It was consistent with the way that they marketed the thing, too. But the pipes that are in front and everything were false pipes, even though it did did have two organ movements, which were attributed to Engel, but I think were actually German origin.
0: I asked Tom about the Engel-Clock's significance in relation to horology, and he brought up this interesting perspective.
4: <laughs> That's a funny question because a lot of the very well-known people in certain areas of horology kind of looked down their nose at it. They regarded it as kind of an anomaly that really was not of the huge horological significance that has been attached to it by a lot of people, most of them being rather purists. And the English clock was basically uh, constructed for um, show as entertainment more than as a clock that had some real significance to the, the design and manufacture of it.
0: I point this out not to downplay Engel's skills or achievements, but to give a fuller picture of the Engel clock. Engel was a great artisan and inventor, but specifically in horology, his work did not become a technical revolution.
4: Yeah, I think he would have been embarrassed to have his clock stack up against some of the really great clocks because a lot of it was just for show. There was nothing in the clock that is completely you know, unique that no other clock has. The importance of the angle clock is that it started a whole genre that didn't exist. They kept comparing it to the great clocks in Europe. Most people never had the chance to see this stuff in person. You know, we're talking about the great cathedral clocks and stuff with moving figures and music and pipes and all that good stuff. So we tried to create a little bit of that, marketed it so that people would think, well, we can see what, uh, get a little taste of these great European clocks and see what they have to offer and what the entertainment value is.
0: For clarity's sake, Tom is specifically referencing the technical aspects of the clock things like the movements and mechanisms. He's specifically saying that Engel's movements were not originally invented by him. They were definitely handmade by Engel himself, but as far as inventing, the movements he used were based off movements that had already been created. This information is valuable because the Engel clock made waves in different avenues that you'll hear about later. But let's get back to Tom at the Barn of the Man from The Traveling Circus. So he's in Goshen, Connecticut. He's standing in a barn on a rainy day, looking at what appears to be a pile of rubble that is indeed the angle clock. Rodents and rats have made a meal out of the wax figurines. It needs a lot of work. The good news is, the seller wants to sell.
4: So we negotiated the price. I didn't have a lot of money. I had authorization to go ahead and try and buy it from the board, but we didn't have much money in the acquisition fund. So I talked to deal with him, came up with a, a price that satisfied him. I gave him a $10,000 down payment, and he gave me three years to pay off the rest of it. So we started loading it up, hauled it back, had a flat tire, and, you know, it was a long trip. We finally got back about 4 in the morning and unloaded the thing. That was a one-day trip started at 8 in the morning, and we got back 4 in the morning the next day. But we got it. And then uh, the fun started.
0: Tom started recruiting and rounding up volunteers, each with their own restoration expertise.
4: And nobody turned me down, even though I said, you know, I can't pay you.
0: Tom had people like Billy Lehman, who restored all the wax figurines. Layman details her restoration process in the NAWCC's February 1990 Bulletin, going through her thought process and discoveries of the figurines. She ends by writing this. I reasoned that most of the damage had been due to mistreatment of good materials. And given this, it seemed a wonder that anything survived. But survive it did. So I went with wax, wood, plaster, and cloth, and hoped for another hundred years under the care of the NAWCC Museum. Here's Bill Zell from earlier describing her work.
3: So she had to totally rebuild new heads. Fortunately... There were a lot of old black-and-white pictures of this clock, so she had good things to work from. And if you look at the soldiers as we see them today, and you look at old photographs of this clock, you can't even tell that they're not the original heads. Everything on the clock was done like that.
0: Another contributing volunteer Tom shared about was...
4: Our conservator, John Metcalf, who
3: is English,
4: did all of the restoration on the mechanical movements and the organ movements. It was almost every day he'd come into my office and say, you're not going to believe what I found today. And I I said, yeah, I will. It was crazy. I mean, there, People have tried to keep the thing running by using, you know, glue and, and bailing wire and things like that. A lot of stuff had to be undone before you could really start, you know, put it back into the condition it was originally. When it all started coming together and it really started to look good. And, of course, we knew exactly how everything was supposed to operate because all of the wonderful pamphlets and everything went into great minutiae detail on exactly what the functions were supposed to be.
0: But Tom still needed money. Remember, the seller had given him three years to pay off the full amount. So Tom made a slide presentation and set off to NAWCC chapters to fundraise.
4: Everybody was really enthusiastic, especially chapter one, Philadelphia chapter one. New Jersey chapter jumped on board and the local New York chapter jumped on board, not only with money, but also with volunteer help. And um, it really became a community project. It was a perfect project for tying together a lot of the members and the chapters. It brought a lot of people around, you know, even a lot of the poo-pooers. <laughs> you can't beat that kind of deal.
0: Keep in mind that the NAWCC is a nonprofit organization. Much of its funding already came from their members. But when Tom came around to ask for even more funds and support, it was the members who stepped up to help. In a lot of ways, the angle clock was at the best place it could be to be
4: restored. Nobody else could have done it. Nobody else would have had the wherewithal or the assets or the resources that we did. And in about two months, I had more money than we had needed to pay it off. And this was a really, really fascinating part. Boxes of these trade cards and pamphlets and even plaster of Paris bookends that look like the Engel clock. And that all went with the clock in the purchase price. And the great part was that we sold the trade cards and uh, pamphlets and even the, uh, the bookends at the gift shop and the museum made more money from the sales of that than the cost of the clock. Yeah, that was the icing on the cake.
0: Tom thought back and remembered where the National Watch and Clock Museum was at during his early years as executive director.
4: I was learning a lot as this was going along, too, because I'd never been involved in a project like this. In 1988, we had a very, very small museum It was only a few years old. It was in a building that we had bought from the uh, power company. What you see now probably wouldn't have transpired if it hadn't been for the Ingalls office.
0: At the time, the museum was fairly new. Its small size and lack of reputation didn't exactly draw crowds of visitors. But once the Engel clock arrived and was restored, it became their window to the public.
4: It took several months, but then one of our members, who was also a journalist, and he put out a blurb on Associated Press. Newspapers and things picked up on it and printed it, and when it was finally done, or close to being done, we were on Good Morning America, we were on um, Nightly News, we were on the cover of the New York Times Magazine. It gave us a lot of credibility and uh, a lot of visual to the public that we didn't have before. It really put our little museum on the map. Nobody had ever heard of our museum before the Anglo clock.
0: All the publicity surprised even the horology purists Tom mentioned before.
4: They couldn't believe it when all this publicity started pouring down on our little museum. Not only the advertising we were getting from it, but, you know, the, the people were coming into the museum in numbers that we had never seen before. The people that really put it together um, and did the restoration and volunteered really got a lot of satisfaction out of it.
0: Tom also credited the angle Clock with starting a ripple effect for the museum. The combination of publicity and member involvement led to growth, including things like a new museum building, a commemorative clock tower, and an educational facility.
4: It's the most famous asset we have in the museum by far, even though it is not horologically important by itself, and people love it.
0: Engel's clock may not have made huge technical advancements in horology, but its presence has made great cultural contributions to horology. But during its time, it caught people's eyes and ears and was well-crafted to hold their attention. And it has especially impacted the National Watch and Clock Museum. Here's Bill Zell again.
3: The thing we do have to remember, when this clock was built, people didn't have much entertainment outside of the home. Your town might've had a playhouse with live theater. You didn't have movies. A rodeo might come to town or a circus, but other than that, You know, there was really not much entertainment. So when this clock came around in the late 1800s, I'm sure it was a big thing, you know, for someone to be able to go see a a show put on like this. So they probably didn't mind sitting still for an hour and listening. In those days, it was probably almost like magic to see these little figures come out and you know, even though their legs weren't marching, they were still going around and you know you see the devil popping out here and there and even small things like Lady Justice raising her scales. As the apostles turn toward Jesus, he nods his head to acknowledge each one of them. I mean, there's just so much detail in there. In the standards of those days, it probably did look pretty realistic.
0: To this day, when people visit the museum, Bill says that just about everyone has something that fascinates them about the clock. Some are fascinated with Engel's religious expression, others with the mechanics. Even young people, teenagers, who may have been forced to come by their parents, stop and stare at the Engel clock.
3: The ones that are hooked on the electronics today, they will come through the museum, and they're bored, of course. It's normal for kids. They sit there, and they're on their smartphones and so on while the parents are looking at the museum. And they get up and I'm given the history and, you know, kids aren't too much usually into history anyway, so it it doesn't offend me when they're playing on their phones during the talks. But you know, once that clock starts running, the phones go down and instead of being something to entertain the kids, the kids are then using their phones a lot of time to videotape, you know, to do video of the clock running. There's just something about it that does attract people. I'd say 90% of the people, if you ask them what their favorite thing was in the museum, it would be the angle clock.
0: The 20 plus years Engel poured into his clock seems small in comparison to the number of years people have viewed and enjoyed it up to our present time. And from what we know of his life, fame and notoriety were never the intention for creating his clock. It was about discovery and learning and making things better one adjustment at a time. In reference to his monumental clock, Engel says this at the end of one of his letters to the reeds. I am no more satisfied now than when I commenced. I am often told to rest, but how can I? Life is too short, and I have too much to learn, that we as yet know very little about. I shall never rest till my mainspring is broken. Barrel burst, pillars knocked loose, ratchet wheel and screw thread stripped, pivots worn out, balance bent and out of adjustment, pallets and pinion leaves pitted, isochronism incorrect, face discolored, hands locked, boxed up, and labeled to the maker for revision and improvement. Yours truly, S.D. Engel. And his sentiment is indeed timeless. It was super great talking to Bill Zhao. He's such a wealth of information and uh, just such a very gracious uh, gentleman as well. In the end, he talked about the Engel clock almost always being a favorite of people's when they come into the museum. When you've been at the museum and have witnessed other people view the clock, how do they react to it?
1: So I find it fascinating how many people all of a sudden want to take pictures and video and post it on social media. For example, we had an event in the spring of last year at the museum, sort of, based around a theme and when people got to the angle monumental clock all of a sudden as bill's running it you see all the all the phones and the selfie sticks going up and i'm thinking oh wow people really like this thing it's not some dated piece of entertainment people are still just as fascinated by it as they were 70 some years ago
0: yeah and for you keith
2: yeah it's the same um i think it's sort of funny when you see it maybe when it's not running for the first time and you're told like oh this thing this thing traveled all up and down the united states and you know people packed, you know they packed people in and they paid a considerable amount of money i mean maybe equivalent to like five dollars today to go and see this thing operate and you think man people well there wasn't television back then but but uh i you're you're quickly corrected when you actually see it um i've seen it run I don't know. Dozens and dozens of times and I'm still fascinated by it. And Jessica's right when when people see it for the first time, all the cell phones, they either go down or they go up because they want to take photos of it and record it. It's it's just so such an unusual and strange thing even for today that yeah, it it still holds fascination and I think I think it will for generations to come.
0: Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of what Bob Frischman talked about a little bit in the last interview. It's something, it's almost like alive. It's moving, it's ticking, it's singing, mm-hmm. it's um, uh, communicating with itself. So that's something that. Um, Hopefully, one day I'll get to see it in person myself. I've seen some videos, but haven't seen it uh, for myself yet.
2: Yeah, we'll have to correct that.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure. And also, again, it's personal because you've got different people and figurines, draws you in more so than just like, you know, the machine. It's like, oh, there's character to this clock. There literally is character to it.
2: Yeah.
0: Anything even more specific that you think why the angle clock is so fascinating to you yourself personally?
2: i still think that there's there's um like i don't think the story's over for this clock i mean thousands and thousands of people have now enjoyed it and that's great but and this is just me and i've talked about this before but maybe someday it could travel again you know and and people from other places in the world could see it because it it is a mobile clock it can travel of course now this is a it's an antique uh important time piece so that would have to go through many different layers of uh of agreement through the NAWCC to get to, but that's just sort of some, sometimes when I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what, what could be done? Uh, also there could be, you know, we could take it more online and there's, there's aspects that we could do interactive parts of it online where it can run and more people can enjoy. Although there's plenty of video taken from it, you know, I'm thinking something more, more specific where people can really get up close to it and see the different parts how it works you know all that stuff um so i i don't think the story's over i think there's there's lots more inspiration and to learn from and to share with the clock the angle clock is the crown jewel of uh in my opinion of 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 the national watch and clock museum for many reasons the fact that it's just so fascinating and people really do love it but it is also a great story of of um the national association of watch and clock collectors who Our mission is to preserve timekeeping, and this is a great example of that, where a whole community got together and and didn't give up, but because our members are so persistent and passionate, they were able to discover this thing that could have been uh, easily lost in time.
1: Building on what Keith's saying with the repair, it's interesting how it does look pretty much like it did in the 1800s, because of people researching and knowing what materials and paints and how to construct it in a way that would be authentic and that it would look good. Because if you go back to the other restorations that were done in the past, that it had kind of looked cheap and had the wrong paints and different things like that. And so, you know, keeping it in good condition, Is definitely something that we work on and we'll keep it going for time on. But I like how you were saying, Keith, about doing more online features and really getting behind the scenes. Because when you see the clock in the museum, you can actually go around the back and pull back the curtain and see the movements and the weights. And so being able to have a online feature where you click on parts of the clock and it rotates and then you can see video and zoom in and do more of that interactive piece where you can get even more up close and personal with that sort of piece than you would actually in a museum. And I think that would be a great future for museums as people go and then they go online and actually get to see deep into the mechanics of the item.
2: And as Jessica said, as you, you can go back and look behind the scenes and the clock, and that's fascinating, but I assure you, it doesn't demystify it by any means. Once you see how it actually sort of works in the mechanics, then there's more questions that pop up. It's not like revealing the curtain in Oz, and then you discover, oh, it's really not at all what you thought. It's, it, it's just amazing to think that something basically very primitive the mechanics of it are, are quite primitive compared to our modern age, but it still is mystifying and it still can fascinate.
0: Mm. I really like what you said, Keith, that Stephen Engel probably had no idea how much impact his piece would have on the culture of horology and all that time and effort he put over the those 20 years building it, developing it, putting his just uh, full effort into it is like remembered even to this day. And probably, like you said, it will still keep going. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have. Um, Thank you so much, you both, for joining me again on this podcast. Um, We will catch you on the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Special thanks to our interviewees, Belle Zell and Tom Bartels. This episode was produced and edited by myself, Anna Tran production advising by keith layman and jessica Rowland. music for this episode is by blue dot sessions theme music was composed by mark ryan and keith layman and was performed by keith layman and special thanks to the naked eye ensemble for providing recording samples of the Engel clock